Good evening. It's the 5th of August, 2023. Saturday night talk at Abayagiri. And we're a few days into our Vasa period, the annual rains retreat period. And so it's not raining here. This is very much the dry season. But in, it is the monsoon season right now in Thailand. In Southeast Asia, so we follow all of the Vinaya, or the rules of our discipline, in uh, in relation to this time. So we did the formal entering of Asa a few days ago, and the community is more stable during this time. Uh, we won't have different monks coming and going at this time, and anybody, any monks who are here right now will end up being here until we exit the Vasa and the late October. And today we went with a group, Ajahn Sikh, myself, and uh, took a van load and a car load of community members to go pay respects to a senior Tibetan monk, Choki Nima Rinpoche, just north of here in, in Leggett, and he's been a monk for about 52 years. And he's very well known, very highly respected, revered in the Tibetan tradition. This is the third time I've gone to pay respects to him. The first time when I was in was when I was in Anagarika, and uh, Longpor Pasano took a group of us to pay respects to him. And then the second time was four years ago, 2019, and went with a small group. And myself, Ajahn Titipanyo, Ajahn Pesalo, Tanyasa. Actually, I believe Tanyasa was maybe driving, actually, still in Anagarika, about to become a novice. So it was a nice day today. What we did is we, after we left from here and we, we arrived, there we attended a about a two-hour teaching, and that was very nice. And afterwards, the Tibetan community prepared a meal had prepared a meal for us, so they offered us the meal. And then we went on a short tour of the land, went down to the Eel River, which comprises part of their land there at uh, Rangchang Yeshe Gomde. Gomde means monastery in Tibetan. So Rangchang Yeshe Monastery, and we went out of the river, came back, and then uh, Rinpoche was there at the dining hall, so we went to go take leave of him and had a nice time, a nice photo op with him. And uh, it was just a, a very good feelings, a very good day. And so I thought I would talk a little bit about what he was teaching and put a bit of a spin on it based on how we practice here at Abayagiri Monastery. And he was giving a teaching that I'm very familiar with already because I've studied different teachings in the Tibetan tradition before. And he was giving a teaching on the seven-limbed prayer. So it's called the seven-limbed prayer. It's more like a seven-sided framework that we can put around any practice we're doing and 
in order to make it very beneficial, in order to make it very wholesome and very efficacious, <clears throat> this seven-faceted framework. And as we were doing the puja this evening and meditating, I was reflecting that actually we're very much following it here already without even really reflecting on it or thinking about it in a formalized way because the framework is paying homage, it's uh, paying homage, giving offerings, um, confession, rejoicing, requesting teachings, uh, requesting great beings to stick around and help us and then dedicating the merit. And so that's a framework for say just a regular evening puja or a Saturday night talk. So we're uh, starting by paying homage, lighting the candles and incense, bowing. Uh, those are the prostrations. So paying homage and then offering some chanting. So that's an offering. May the, and even in the chanting, we say, may these offerings be accepted for our long-lasting benefit, for the happiness it gives us. So we chant that all the time. And confession. So we're actually from Buddha Dhamma Sangha, by body, speech, or mind, for whatever wrong action I've committed toward the Buddha, toward the Dhamma, toward the Sangha. May my acknowledgement of fault be accepted, that in the future there may be restraint toward the Buddha, toward the Dhamma, toward the Sangha, so we're doing confession. So right there is the first three. <clears throat> and then the meditation. We can bring up a sense of rejoicing or a sense of gratitude. And so that would be the fourth limb. And then the fifth, requesting teachings. So Anagar Kazander requesting the Dhamma talk this evening. Uh, the sixth, asking great beings to stick around. We aren't doing that normally in our morning puja in a formal way, but mentally we can always be asking our teachers, asking the Kruba Ajans to stick around for our sake, hoping they don't go away, hoping that they don't leave our side and that they can continue helping us out. It's a humble acknowledgement that we need assistance and we will need assistance for a long time to come. And then the dedication is the seventh, so that's the verses of sharing and aspiration that we will end up doing after this talk. So right there we have it. And when we surround our practice, say just the simple practice of doing evening chanting and meditation, we surround it with that seven-faceted framework, <clears throat> then it becomes very useful, very beneficial, very efficacious. So, Choki Nimaripache talked about the seven-limbed prayer, and then he gave many other teachings, which I won't go into this evening. And he, at the end, he said he wanted to give a teaching specifically for us, and he said that actually he's giving this retreat. This, it's either a seven or 10 day retreat. I didn't quite pick up on how long the retreat was. But the theme of the retreat is the four seals of the Dhamma. And he wanted to talk about the four seals of the Dhamma to us because he said it, um, seeing us caused him to reflect on that. And he wanted to just tell us what he was framing his whole retreat around. So that's the, I'll talk about that in a bit. But first to go into the seven-limbed prayer or the seven-faceted framework. And the, the first, 
the first limb, the first facet, is paying homage. And we do that through prostrations, through uh, bowing. And the word in Thai is grab. And each tradition will have its own way of bowing. So we have our form that we bow in that we've learned from Lung Por Cha. And it's a, a very beautiful way to bow that we are on our haunches, uh, on our knees, and, and actually bringing our hands to our forehead and then to our heart and uh, going down with our, there's a certain form, there's a way to do it. And if anybody learns how to do it correctly, it's a very beautiful way to, to pay homage. And when we're, we bring our head down to the ground and our elbows are touching our knees and we try to not lift our bum too far in the air, try to keep it on our haunches. And then our hands are at each side of our head, at each side of our forehead, and then we touch our forehead to the ground. And then we kind of push ourselves back up, bring hands back to the forehead and do that three times. As a, and recollecting that we're paying homage to Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. And when and in the Wat Papong branch monasteries we do a lot of bowing. So when we enter the hall we bow. When we leave we bow. When we greet a senior monk we bow. When we wake up in the morning in our kuti, in our dwelling place, first thing we do, get up, bow. When we leave our kuti to come down for morning puja, bow. Go back to our kuti in the evening, bow. And before we go to sleep, we bow. So there's many different opportunities and occasions that we practice bowing throughout the day as our, just the general practice, the standard practice here at Abayagiri. And though we aren't doing the Tibetan style prostrations, the full body prostrations where we actually go from a standing position all the way to the stomach and back up again. We are doing a lot of bows each day and it adds up. So, Chokinima Rinpoche talked for quite a bit about bowing when he was talking about this first limb and he talked about bowing in the way we do it. He also talked about bowing in the form where you go all the way down onto your stomach and that there's two different intentions there. So just the, the bowing that we do here at Abayagiri, it's a very beautiful way to pay homage. But when you're, and, and you're bringing the cleanest part of your body, your head, you're bringing it to the floor. So it's specifically tailored to overcome things like pride and arrogance. And that's a very important part of our practice. But when you throw yourself down from a standing position, you go down on your stomach and do those Tibetan style prostrations. The intention's a bit different because it's not just paying homage, but it's actually a practice of relinquishing attachment to the body. And so disregarding your body, disregarding your cleanliness and your bodily comfort in order to do that style of bowing. So that's, that's a different style of practice, which is also good And so bowing and paying homage, especially that aspect of overcoming 
pride and arrogance is extremely important, an extremely important foundation for practice. And uh, in the teaching, uh, he brought up that uh, he knows a lot of people who have two PhDs and some people who have even three PhDs, but they refuse to bow. And, and then he also brought up this teaching that they have in the Tibetan tradition that uh, in the degenerate Dhamma age, which is around, around this time, or the age when, when humanity is starting to degenerate, then there will be three things happening. And uh, one is that um, people, people will become smarter. But as people become smarter, the defilements also become smarter. The defilements become stronger. And so bowing is a good way to go against that. And the food, the second thing was the food will um, not be as healthy. So there's a lot of chemicals and a lot of genetically modified foods and a lot of food is not wholesome. Food is not as wholesome as it used to be. And then people will, will wear torn clothes and he kind of made a joke about that. He said, yeah, like, like all the people who like to wear the torn jeans now. That's, that's also, so all three of those things are coming true. So bowing is a really good way to develop respect. And it's not just like groveling or a sign of weakness or, or like indebting ourselves to somebody else. Yeah, but it's really cultivating, overcoming those unwholesome qualities in the mind and cultivating wholesome qualities. So we start by bowing, by paying respects. That first limb is homage. And then offerings. Offerings is generosity. So when we make offerings, then we try to give what we can. And we can both offer material things, we can offer our time, uh, we can offer fearlessness to people through the keeping of virtue, through the keeping of precepts. So we're offering our virtue, we can offer our goodness, we can dedicate our goodness to others. Yeah. We can offer Dhamma. So there's all sorts of things we can offer. So when we're doing any practice, asking ourselves, what, what can we offer? What can we give to this? So even a meditation period is an offering of time. So we might think, well, I don't have time to meditate. But then if we, we can actually think of our meditation as an offering, that can really get us to meditate. And then the confession, how we, we bow down and confess. And then the bhikkhus here have 227 precepts. So when we break a precept, we confess it to another bhikkhu. Normally we do this in a formalized way on the Oposita day, on the Padimokha day, so that uh, we confess. We just reveal, we're very transparent about our behavior. We reveal it to our fellows in the holy life. And so there's that third limb of confession. And when we confess something, 
it's important to actually have what we call hiriotipa. I actually feel bad about it. Actually, normally we hear, well, it's, it's not good to feel bad. It's good to feel good. It's not good to feel bad. But actually, in the case of confession, it can be good to feel bad if we've genuinely done something wrong that we shouldn't do again. Because feeling bad about it is going to cause us to not do it again. The Buddha has this interesting teaching that's kind of counterintuitive where he says uh, there's these two types of people. There's people who might do something wrong and they feel bad about it. And then there's people who do something wrong and they don't feel bad about it. Or they, people who do something wrong and they know it's wrong. And people who do, do a wrong action and they don't know it's wrong. And the pr people who do a wrong action and don't know it's wrong it's actually worse than the person who does a wrong action and knows it's wrong. And when I read that teaching, I thought, that's, that's not right. That must be a clerical error, or that, that must be some sort of mistake in the suttas. I read it over and over again. But actually, upon reflection, it does make sense, because when you know something's wrong, you're less likely to do it again. When you don't know something's wrong, you're more likely to do it again and again. And so, yes, yes, it is worse if you don't know it's wrong. So that's hiriotipa. That's what we call like conscience, a sense of conscience that we develop in the practice. Uh, Lumpur Mun called hiri and otapa the protectors of the world, the lokapala. And if we have that sense of conscience, then the mind, the heart is going to move in a direction of having a dhamma. <laughs> having a dhamma compass where we know what's right and wrong. So that's really what confession is pointing towards, is, is learning about what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, what's skillful, what's unskillful, what's right and wrong action, and learning how to reveal wrong actions when we engage in them, and learning how to steer ourselves uh, more in the direction of right action, of wholesome action, body, speech, and mind. Then there's rejoicing, and we can say quite a bit about that. Now, rejoicing is, there's a beautiful word in Thai, mudita jit. So it's a quality of mudita, or happiness, at the good actions of others happiness at the good works of others. So when, when somebody is doing something good or engaging in a wholesome Dhamma practice, then it's useful and necessary to actually rejoice in that. It's very, very good kama for us to rejoice in the good actions of others. And it's bad kama to feel jealous, to get jealous or criticize somebody else for doing something good. Or we compare ourselves to others. Oh, or oh, who do they think they are? They're doing all these good deeds. I, I don't have the ability to do that. So the rejoicing is a directly cuts out that unwholesome part of the mind. So that that quality of mudita, it's really uh, when we see the good actions of someone else in order to make merit, in order to make good kama, all we have to do is feel happy about it. 
So why can't we do that? It feels so good to feel happy about something. It feels so good to rejoice about something. It feels so good to rejoice about the goodness of others. So why can't we do it? What's stopping us? Why do we... It's habit. It's the power of habit. And I'm speaking from experience here. I know exactly what it's like to feel jealous when somebody else is doing something good. Because I want to be the one. I want to be the one doing that. I want to be the one getting the recognition. I want to be the one that other people are rejoicing in. I don't want to be the one rejoicing in somebody else. But that sense of rejoicing is you really get a share of the other person's goodness. So it's like, it's like Ajahn Shunda looking after these, the building of these kutis. And I have this feeling, I don't even need to get involved. I can simply rejoice in the goodness that's happening. And in a way, I get a share of that, even though I'm not involved in the project. And it's really great. It's delightful. And all these, all the sangha carrying concrete bags and building supplies out to these building sites. I'm not helping at all. I feel very, I can rejoice in what they're doing. Not just because I don't have to do it, but uh, the efforts, the efforts that they're putting forth and the goodness that they're cultivating, that's delightful, that's wonderful. So rejoicing also, it's a direct antidote to that sense of sometimes we come to the practice and we might be a bit new to the practice and it all seems very kind of grim and it's, oh, I've got these defilements and we have uh, something that doesn't really come up to, there's, a, there's an aspect that I, I was reminded of, I've been in, until recently I was in Thailand for about seven months and was away from America, so coming back I get reminded of certain things. And one thing they don't really seem to have in Thailand is existential angst. Like, uh, like people don't tend to have existential angst in Thailand. In Thailand, it's more like if a monk is suffering, it's because he can't eat noodles in the evening or it's something much more inane. <laughs> but uh, coming back to the West and, oh yeah, there's this whole existential angst. It's very heavy. It's like, uh, life is so, why is life so awful? And that doesn't really come up in Thailand, but it can be good. You know, it gets us to practice, but it, it's also good if we get out of it. <laughs> it's good if we get out of it, and, and rejoicing can help us do that. So just bringing them, trying to, raise the mind out of that quagmire of suffering. So then there's requesting Dhamma. So this, this is an important one because we, we don't actually proselytize in, in our tradition. So we, we like to, we will teach if we feel like it, if we're requested. So course we do that of course we know we're going to give a Saturday night talk but we still follow that tradition and uh, so Anagar Xander uh, requesting the teaching this evening at least we follow that tradition and it's it's a nod to that that idea that we only teach when requested 
And this is also a good, you know, it's a good, a good rule for life, uh, not to volunteer too much information or just go up to somebody and start telling them what we think about anything. Just to, if somebody really wants to know, they're going to ask us about it. So if somebody doesn't ask us about it, we don't really need to talk about it to people. And it's really much more useful, much more beneficial to teach only when requested. Because if we were just going out and spreading the good word of the Dhamma, it might actually repel people who would other, otherwise be interested. So, so it can actually end up leading to an increase of faith in the faithful and a rising of faith in people who haven't given rise, given rise to faith yet, if we're not just kind of going out there and trying to beat the drum of the deathless you know, to the populace. But we're actually, and even if somebody watches this on YouTube, they actually have to click on the link. It's not just coming up as an advertisement in their, uh, I guess it might actually, but uh, <laughs> you, maybe not though. And they still have to click on it to watch it. That's the request. Then there's the asking our teachers to stick around. This is beseeching our ajans, our, our, the Kruba ajans, our senior teachers to stick around, or even so much as asking the Buddha's teaching to stick around, you know, actually making that wholesome request. We can do it mentally. We could do this during our meditation. This is also, I think it's similar to homage. It's actually over, it's actually an acknowledgement that we do need that type of assistance in the long run. And then the dedication. So when we do, do the dedication, it's actually bringing a close to a practice and actually wrapping it up in a wholesome way and saying, okay, uh, I want to dedicate it to my eventual awakening, dedicate it to Nibbana, or we might dedicate this practice to our parents. And it's important when we do a dedication, uh, the best way to do a dedication is to dedicate it to our ultimate aims, our ultimate purposes. And, and it's, it's important to try to not dedicate it to something trivial like, you know, may I um, get that job or, you know, something, something in this life, but to go a little bit higher than that, go a little bit further than that. But really, this is going to be up to the individual how we dedicate our practice. So that's a brief overview of this seven-limbed prayer or the seven-faceted framework for any practice for making it wholesome. And it was it was quite wonderful to be a part of that teaching. And I was also just as an aside, I was really blown away by the translator actually, because. Uh, Chokini Marimpache was teaching a Tibetan and the translator was absolutely phenomenal. I think some of the best I've yeah, it was it was like geopolitical level translation, like where you just get everything right. Oh, that's how it seemed anyway. Then the four seals of the Dhamma, this is jumping to the end of this two hour teaching, is uh, something very 
well known, very common in our own tradition, and that's anicca, dukkha, anatta, and nibbana. And that's the four seals of the Dhamma. And so just a few reflections on those things, just very short reflections before we wrap it up for this evening. And anicca, impermanence or uncertainty, inconstancy, there's, as a reflection, there's coarse impermanence, there's subtle impermanence, and there's very subtle impermanence. And so coarse impermanence is, yeah, the body grows up, but it's kind of sustaining itself. It's, it's still the body, it's still our body, it's still our life. Grows up, gets old, passes away, passes away, and then it, it's no more. So that's coarse impermanence. Subtle impermanence would be something like the mind where we have different thoughts and ideas coming up, but they pass away. But they're, they're pretty quick and they're, it's more subtle, but there is a thought arising somehow sustaining itself and then passing away in time. And then very subtle impermanence would be the ultimate nature of impermanence, which is every conditioned thing, every sankara, every conditioned thing, whether internal or external, doesn't remain constant even for a moment, even for an instant. And it's all in absolute flux. And this is pointing to the illusory nature of existence. And then from that contemplation of subtle impermanence, you can jump into the contemplation of Nibbana, the unconditioned. Which is actually the opposite of that subtle ultimate level of impermanence. Because if things remained constant, even for a moment, if there was anything in the universe, anything, any sankara that actually did remain constant for even for a moment, then the unconditioned wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't be, the Buddha's teaching wouldn't be. So it's kind of a profound contemplation. Then there's dukkha, or suffering, dissatisfaction, as another truth, or as another aspect of existence. And dukkha can also be thought of as not just out-and-out suffering, or not total out-and-out sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, but it can also be thought of as like a not-quite-rightness or an imbalance. Things aren't quite perfect, things aren't quite right, things are, are out of balance, They're, something's wrong, something's off, but I can't put my finger on it, so that's dukkha. And then the anatta, the not-self nature of existence, or the not-self nature of the conditioned realm. That if, if things are impermanent, inconstant, and things are not quite right or are out of balance, then how could they be clung to as me or mine you know, in any useful way? So the not-self teaching is not me, not mine. And so we might, we might hear a teaching like that and think, well, if all things are not me, not mine, might feel kind of vulnerable, might feel unmoored, might feel a bit not sure about going into a practice like that or taking on a teaching like that. So it's also good to know that 
when someone has realization into not-self, someone has realization into not-me, not-mine, the result of that is absolute stability, absolute assuredness, and incredible steadiness. And it's because it's really me and mine which is making us unmoored. It's really me and mine which is making us unstable, unsteady. So that's something worth thinking about. And then the fourth seal of the Dhamma being Nibbana, or the possibility of Nibbana, the possibility of peace, the possibility of liberation from the khandhas, liberation from condi conditioned existence. There is that possibility. And when we contemplate Nibbana, this is Nibbana Nusati, or contemplating peace, contemplating when the true nature of reality or the mind in and of itself is absolutely still, absolutely quiet, and absolutely peaceful. And that one, one of the other aspects or the ways to contemplate Nibbana that Lumpur Ban talks about, which I really liked, is any contemplation we do, whether it's the elements or whether it's the mind, we think of these things, they're actually completely at peace in and of themselves. The earth is completely at peace in and of itself, whether clean things or dirty things are placed on it, it's completely peaceful in and of itself. And water is completely peaceful in and of itself, whether dirty or, dirty or clean things are placed in water, the water remains peaceful in and of itself, it just remains in its own nature. Fire, you know, whether you throw clean or unclean things into a fire, the fire itself remains within its own nature. And air being the same, it remains, it remains peaceful in its own nature. And so we use those types of contemplations of Nibbana to say, well, what about the mind? Is the mind peaceful in its own nature? And uh, Rinpoche also he touched on that by talking about meditation. And it reminded me of a teaching I'd forgotten about, which, which I quite like, which is if we meditate, we're actually, like it's us meditating, and that can lead to agitation, that sense of I have to meditate, I have to put effort into this meditation object. If our mind is just wandering, that's distraction. And so the way you have to meditate, the way that's good to practice is undistracted non-meditation. This phrase, undistracted non-meditation. I could easily link that in my mind with this sense of earth, water, fire, and air being peaceful in and of themselves and without having to change themselves in any way. Of course, it's, we use it as a contemplation because it's not easy to do. It also reminds me of how Lumpur Cha said that in his first year of meditation practice, he didn't feel peaceful. And whenever he meditated, he wasn't peaceful. And when he stopped meditating, then he felt peaceful. So he thought, oh, when I'm not meditating, I'm at ease. So that's the non-meditation part. So maybe there's something to that. So anyway, uh, seven-limbed prayer and 
four seals of the Dhamma, just as some reflections this evening to uh, take and, and consider and use for our own practice. And I'll leave it there.